listening to the ACB Advocacy Update. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of ACB Advocacy Update. This is Claire Stanley, the Advocacy and Outreach Specialist with the American Council of the Blind. And Clark Rockfall, Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs for ACB. Thank you to everyone who is tuning in via your favorite podcast player. Uh, Be sure to subscribe and give us those reviews. And also to everyone listening on ACB Radio. As always, if you'd like to learn more about the work being done at ACB, please check us out at acb.org. Also, as always, if you have any advocacy needs, please feel free to reach out to Clark and myself. That's what we're here for. We want to make sure we can help in any way. So you can reach us at advocacy at acb.org. That's advocacy at acb.org. All right. And Claire, uh, it is still October here in the year 2020, and that means it is still National Disability Employment Awareness Month. Indeed, it's getting close to the end of the month, but we are still in October, so we're still celebrating Endeam. I was going to say, did you mean Indeed or did you mean Endeam? Oh, I, I think I enunciated Endeam, <laughs> but uh, it's Endeam Indeed. Do you like that? <laughs> there you go. There you go. And the 75th National Disability Employment Awareness Month and also the 30th anniversary of the ADA. Mm-hmm. And today we have a special guest to talk with us about disability employment. And our guest is Chairman Neil Romano of the National Council on Disability. And Chairman Romano has a distinguished career uh, beginning with the Department of Labor as the Assistant Assistant Secretary for the Office of Disability Employment Programs, or ODEP, as well as working with the Commission for uh, Employment of people who are blind or severely disabled, also known as the Ability One Commission, and who has also served on the board for National Industries for the Blind. Chairman Romano, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you, Clark and Claire? Good to, good to be with you. Yeah, thank you for taking some time uh, to be with us today. We're really excited to learn about what you've done in the past, as well as what NCD is currently doing and moving forward. Um, it, it's great to, to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. And Mr. Chairman, I did not try to give an extensive review of your <laughs> past accomplishments, uh, but please let, let us know if there is anything else that, uh, that you would like to add or that we have missed so far with your background. You know, I, uh, Clark, I, I think that's just fine. The longer the, the, longer the resume, the, the older you feel. So I think that's perfectly okay. If we, if we get too deep, then people say, my goodness, this guy's at least 90. So uh, I'm fine. Thank you. But that was a lovely introduction. I appreciate it. All right. And you were appointed to the board for NCD by the Senate. And then you were appointed as chairman of National Council on Disability, which is a uh, independent federal advisory agency by President Trump. And I guess, could you provide us with a bit of background on NCD as an organization? Sure, absolutely. Uh, the National Council on Disability um, is, a, uh, is a, an independent federal agency 
that is uh, has uh, nine nine council members who are appointed by uh, the president, the House, and the Senate. Uh, so it's a bipartisan commission. Uh, we have uh, two people, uh, one appointed by the Senate Majority Leader and the Minority Leader, one person appointed by the Speaker of the House and the Minority Leader, and then five by the President, and they rotate. So it's an, it's an agency that has been, uh, that has, is a little bit, uh, I believe it's 40 years old now. Uh, and we're very proud of the fact that uh, NCD actually wrote the first draft of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Mm-hmm. So it has a long and, and proud history. But our, our responsibility is I, when I give a, a, a shorthand uh, definition of what we do is we're responsible to look at all things disability uh, within the federal government and outside. And take a look and say, you know, are we living up to the promise of the Americans with Disabilities Act? Are we doing the things that are necessary to be sure that people with disabilities are included in every aspect of American life equally with everyone else? So it is a constant, um, you know, it, it's, it's constant vigilance where we look at agencies, we look at individual programs within agencies, we listen to the, uh, we listen to the constituency of people with disabilities across the board and we issue we do research uh, and then we issue reports with recommendations which is our responsibility to both the congress and the president of the united states uh, oftentimes uh, we issue those uh, those well we issue an annual report and then we issue a series of small reports between time but our job is vigilance for people with disabilities uh, it it it's extremely important that within the federal government that you always have someone there that's saying, uh, hey, have you considered people with disabilities in this particular issue? Um, have you considered the impact it will have? I'll, I'll give you a, an example of something. Uh, you've probably heard of CAFE standards, which is, you know, the number of miles per gallon. Mm-hmm. And everybody was interested in getting the miles per gallon up, you know, uh, for a lot of vehicles. Well, it became apparent to us at NCD that uh, raising, um, you know, the cafe standard for small like vans and things um, would not be able to stand the weight of people in their wheelchairs and be able uh-huh. to the mileage. So we had a conversation with the Department of Transportation and said, as you look at this, please recognize, you know, that when uh, you put uh, someone uh, in, a, uh, in, a, in a, a massive wheelchair into one of your vans, into one of these vans, you know, gas mileage goes down and that needs to be considered so that we don't foreclose transportation opportunities for people with disabilities. So we're constantly looking at jobs programs, justice programs, anything you can think of uh, to see how we can uh, make it better for people with disabilities. That sounds really fun and exciting to kind of have your your hand in all kinds of different pots to see how things are impacting the disability community. Because as we know at ACB, just about everything impacts our community in some way, shape or form. So that must keep it really interesting to have a whole slew of different topics that you get a look at any given day. It, it really does. It really is very interesting. I tend uh, during my chairmanship, we've tended to focus on two things. Um, a great deal. We focus on employment. Uh, 
as my my number one thing and uh, probably you know uh, two two a or a you know one a very very close second is accessible medical equipment mm-hmm. and accessibility in the medical field for people so um you know during uh ending uh, National Disability Awareness Month. Uh, we've, um, you know, we have a we have a good deal to say about a lot. And as a matter of fact, I think uh, probably the most, uh, you know, the most uh, interesting thing that we've done in the last couple of months is that NCD just last, I think it was a week ago, issued a report on the Ability One program. And uh, I think as something of a surprise to everybody, uh, we suggested that the program be actually eliminated. Because after a, a long look at the program, a great deal of research on the Ability One program, we realized um, that we still have a situation there where, first of all, uh, you have a great many people being people with disabilities being paid less than the minimum wage because of the 14C certificate of the, quote, Fair Labor Standards Act, mm-hmm. which allows people with disabilities to be paid less than others. And also, quite frankly, we feel that in 2020, the concept of segregated employment is something that really is a vestige of the past. We really believe um, that uh, people with disabilities should be integrated into the community like everybody else. And rather than separating them out through segregation, we think we have to fight harder uh, to find ways to integrate them. Uh, into society, integrate people so they can live the lives they want and not the lives that are basically prescribed for them. Can you, uh, can you, in, you know, 30 seconds or less for our listeners who might not be as familiar with the Ability One program, do you mind giving us a quick summary of what the Ability One program is? Sure. The Ability One program is an 80-year-old program that uh, what it does is it gets uh, uh, special contracts from the government that they then give to disability groups to do um, products and services. Uh, Oh, when it began 83 years ago, it was a good idea. It was a very good idea because it was a way of helping to employ people with disabilities. But now, you know, 80 years past uh, that, uh, with all of the civil rights laws, with things like, uh, you know, uh, individual education funds for people. We're getting much, much more educated people. We're not segregating them in education anymore, people with disabilities. We have more educated people with disabilities. We have people with disabilities now who want a different life. They want a better life for themselves. And that program has tended to to kind of pigeonhole people into these kind of rote uh, programs that don't move, uh, that don't that don't move the employment needle forward quickly enough, or at all in some cases, for people with disabilities. So that's mm-hmm. the one program. It's interesting that both the authorizing statute for the Ability One program and the Fair Labor Standards Act, which allows for the payment of subminimum wages for people with disabilities are both 80-year-old statutes. And here we are in the 75th year of uh, National Disability Employment Awareness Month. Uh, before we dive any deeper into subminimum wage and Ability One, uh, Mr. Chairman, I wonder if you could just give a sense of the, I guess, the broad state of disability employment in America. Um, how do you think things are progressing? Where are we now? Um, and just your your broad sense. 
You know, uh, I have to tell you, Clark, this is not going to be a pretty answer. <laughs> I am not happy. We want uh, honesty. That's what we want. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not even. I'm not even a little bit happy uh, about the state of employment for people with disabilities. I mean, we still. Uh, those of us with disabilities are still twice as likely to be unemployed and twice as likely to live in poverty. So that, frankly, makes me twice as angry about it. Uh, the fact of the matter is uh, that we have made some progress, not enough progress, hardly enough progress, even since ADA. The numbers haven't moved that much. I will say that over the last three and a half, four years, the numbers have risen fairly substantially for people with disabilities, um, you know, in a quote, you know, um, you know, a high tide lifts all boats kind of situation. But in the same vein, uh, since uh, we have had uh, this, uh, this onset of COVID-19, uh, once again, the numbers of people with disabilities have dropped uh, precipitously. And one of the things that NCD and we're, we're preparing and beginning to work on is to make sure that as we start moving back and, you know, we start getting better. And by the way, America's going to get better. We're going to get stronger. It's going to go. It's going to be there's we're going to find out how to do this. I guess I'm old enough to tell you I've been through a couple of epidemics and pandemics and, you know, both our ingenuity and by the grace of God, we get through these things. But as we get through these things. We have to put a special emphasis on people with disabilities, because if we don't, they'll lag behind again. We have to remind the government, this is what happened during COVID. This was unacceptable. We understood it was, you know, it was a, you know, a tragedy, but it's unacceptable to say, okay, people with disabilities are going to be the last back into the economy. They're going to be the last back into jobs. That should not be the case. We're going to be fighting to be absolutely sure that they're part and parcel of the entire resurrection of the economy uh, and people with this and, and the American, uh, the American worker. Mr. Chairman, do you have a, a, it sounds like you do have a sense of optimism that in, in the long run, we will get through this in that um, same tone. Are you optimistic that with the broad accommodations that employers are adopting now um, to maintain operations with the pandemic, that those will serve people with disabilities as they look for either entry, re-entry, or evolution within the workspace? You know, that's a really wonderful question because, uh, you know, in, in anytime you have something like this happen, you get the opportunity to look at things you probably wouldn't have looked at before. I mean, one of the accommodations uh, we're finding out is uh, we had been seeing, but now we're seeing even more, is that um, uh, 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 homework, you know, people working from their homes uh, are, it, it's acceptable and people are actually as more productive. Um, and that certainly solves a lot of problems for people with disabilities. Um, because as I say, it's not just about getting the job. It's about getting to the job. It's about all the barriers between your home and the job that we have to think about. So as we look at people working, like myself, working from our, our homes, we're beginning to say that that's something. But the, the thing I want to mention is that as we, move, as we reopen the economy and things start going again, you're absolutely right. 
the accommodations and things that we're making with for people with disabilities if it's really if it's helping them in the you know in the in the short run <clears throat> then it should in the long run you know over my career i have had a a real i've had a real problem with the word accommodations um i i dislike them uh frankly <laughs> as it relates to work because if uh, i mean if a person who is blind or has limited vision says i need a good screen reader what are they actually saying to the employer they're saying i want to do my job mm-hmm. uh, that, that's not an accommodation that's me saying hey you know do you want me to be productive do you want me to be an active part of the society or do you as a business think that i should only do 50% as much work as the guy next to me that's wrong from my point of view an accommodation is if you guys come over to my house i love to cook if you don't want mushrooms in your tomato sauce i won't put mushrooms in that's an accommodation <laughs> but for me asking an employer to give me the tools i need um that's just a product i call them productivity enhancements mm-hmm. as opposed to accommodations this is just my way of saying to you hey i want to be the best employee i can be for you so Yes, uh you know, I want to see those productivity enhancements that we're using to keep people on the job and get them on the job. I want to see them used, expanded um until we reach a point when there isn't an American who wants a job uh and gets a job can't stay on the job and be 100% productive. Mm. Claire, I like that. It's more a, an investment in the productivity and success of your employees rather than uh, basically creating an excuse on why they can't l- perform to their full potential. Mm-hmm. I like that too. Yeah. And I have to imagine that that's probably some of the thinking that uh, was in place more than 80 years ago uh, when we had the, the creation of subminimum wage for people with disabilities. And Mr. Chairman, you went into the, the Fair Labor Standards Act as the, the reason this is permitted today. I guess, what's the, the lasting impact of this policy? Well, very honestly, the lasting impact is it's basically saying to the American people that people with disabilities can't. Mm-hmm. They're not as valuable. You know, it's, uh, it's very sad as I travel around within uh, government and hear people literally say to me, well, obviously, people with disabilities can't perform at the same level as another person because, I mean, we even have programs where we pay them less money. You know, that's heartbreaking because it's not true. You know, it, it's simply not true. It's a, piece, it's a piece of legislation that is before the Civil Rights Act, let alone ADA. It was before it. we were just on the cusp of beginning to understand the value of all Americans, let alone people with disabilities, that we just marginalized to a point where we could do that. So the lasting impact is that there is a, what I call, a heritage or a charity model that Mm -hmm. people with disabilities, we, you know, people think they can't. And that part of that, that thinking is just for me, is completely unacceptable uh, in 2020. I have to tell you, uh, I am, uh, I'm 66 years old. And uh, when I was younger, I, I, I have very, very bad dyslexia. Um, reading and writing and things like that, you know, are, are hard for me and still are, by the way. Well, in, in those days, they had no idea what I had. 
They didn't even have a name for it, okay? And I was foreclosed. They didn't even want me to go to college. They wanted me to become a baker. None of these things bother me. But the fact is, they were wrong. Mm -hmm. They made decisions about me that were unfounded based upon what they knew then. Well, if we're still making decisions about people with disabilities that are 80 plus years old, there's something desperately wrong. You know, I, I even think about uh, I even think about the blind community. Uh, I have a I have a, a, a much longer history with the blind community. People might think my father uh, was on the board of directors of a, a blind religious organization. So my whole life, I was around people who were blind who were very accomplished, extremely accomplished musicians, people on radio, uh, people who were you know ministers and so on and so on. And I never understood any variation or difference. And that's kind of an understanding of the way people should be treated, how they, you know, what they can do. My motto has been continuously over the last 20 or so years is that we should evaluate someone based upon what they can do and not marginalize them based upon what they can't do. It's just mm -hmm. not fair. The Ability One program and 14C and subminimum wages basically says people can't do this so we're gonna give them this scrap that fell off the table so here's kind of a, a theoretical question i guess for lack of a better word do you feel like in order to get rid of 14c we have to change society or do you think we'll change society by getting rid of 14c that's a great <laughs> that's a great question but <laughs> from my point of view let's begin by looking at the law okay mm -hmm. yeah the law um, is is a it's not a predecessor to morals or you know mm -hmm. or the change of society, but if the law is a bad law, then let's get rid of the law. Yeah. Simultaneously, I say, by getting rid of the law, we are saying, in the broadest sense, the American people, this is not true anymore. This was probably not true then, but we didn't have the tools then. We have the tools now. We have those things that can, that can make people with disabilities live the lives they want to live. Now, I always end a talk with people saying, now, you're going to go back to your business and talk about these great things you should do, you know, with regard to productivity enhancements and everything. But what I really want you to do today is I really want you to look at yourself and say, how do I feel about other human beings that I see have differences? And what is my part in that? How do I play that part? And that's the kind of societal changes you're looking for. Hmm. Yeah. And Mr. Chairman from... 180-year-old statute to another. Uh, you mentioned the recent NCD report on the Ability One program, um, and you mentioned that the I guess the key finding in the report was that the Ability One program uh, basically it needs to go away or it needs to evolve for our uh, modern era. Could you please dive a little bit deeper into the the findings of this report? Sure. Well, you know, first of all, you know, uh, in, in looking at in looking at the the results of the Ability One program, um, what we we saw was that over the years, um, 
over the last almost 10 years, the number of jobs uh, achieved by the Ability One program for people with disabilities has either gone down dramatically or remained stagnant. Uh, if, uh, um, you know, so, you know, that, that's, not a, that's not a program that deserves a great deal of money. But then you go beyond that and find out that during that same tenure, um, the, uh, the organizations within the Ability One program doubled the number of employees they have, I mean, staff employees that run the organizations, uh, the amount of money have, that they have gotten in, uh, in contracts from the federal government has gotten bigger and bigger. Uh, all of this with static or dropping employment for people with disabilities. Um, so if we look at it just from that point of view, um, immediately you have to say, well, you know, what's wrong? But then, once again, when you look at it from the flow of history, the desire, the desire of the American people for, you know, more freedom, more equality, for people to be, you know, looked at, you know, uh, as equals, it doesn't pass the test anymore. Uh, I mean, for instance, even the 14C statute, the... uh, um, the, the Civil Rights Commission of the United States says it's wrong. We've said it's wrong for 12 years. Um, but, the, but what we saw in looking at the program was you also saw a little bit of a lack of, you know, I mean, consistent lack of accountability. Our findings in reality really reflected a great deal of what the, the Government Accountability Office has said over a number of years, it, in, in, including the Ability One's own uh, own inspector general, some of those things that he said we agreed with. So what we're saying is, uh, what we said in the report was that we no longer need a government-made system of employment for people with disabilities. You know, it's the regular employment system of the United States was not designed by the government of the United States, and it's successful, and it pumps along, and we've got a lot of people employed in things. But this was a system that was made in a time, once again, where people felt that it was okay to segregate people. It was okay to pay them less money. It was okay to talk down to them. It was okay to put them in a room and say to them, okay, you have three different jobs in this place. You can pick one. What do you want to do? You, you want to, you you know, you want to sort hangers? Uh, do you want to do, uh, you know, uh, do you want to put little things in boxes? Do you want to wrap pencils? I mean, th- those were the choices given. And as we look at the program, what we're saying is that now with, uh, with other opportunities within the federal government, where we now have laws that say that people that do business with the government have to put X number of people on uh, as employees, people with disabilities, we see a greater opportunity. We see expansion there. If we say that they must do more, they must be a percentage of people with disabilities that are hired in all government hiring, not just in all government purchasing, not just these small little areas, you know, Mm -hmm. mops, helmets, uh, you know, uh, things like that. Everything. I mean, I think about friends of mine who are, uh, I mean, some of these folks from uh, the National Industries for the Blind, for instance, that I know, who would have believed 20 years ago, who would have believed under any condition that they would actually have a program that, that works with people who are blind who are building websites? Who would have believed that? Nobody. 
Who would have believed that some of the highest paid people uh, and on IV are people who are working in things like government contract closeout. Now, they have some wonderful programs, but there's no reason for those to be housed in, in, a, in a particular place. From our point of view, though, it is quintessentially important. There's approximately 45,000 people with disabilities, both blind and people with severe disabilities, in the Ability One program. We want to make absolutely sure that not one person loses a job, that not one person. And as a matter of fact, our recommendations say we would like to phase the program out over eight years. But even during that eight-year period, we are recommending certain things to be put into place that guarantee that the program gets better, not because we don't want to replace the program, but there are human beings in this program (laughs) that need to be appreciated. And we can't say, okay, well, we'll wait. Even if, let's say, it passes tomorrow, okay, well, you guys got to wait for better things to happen for eight years. Wrong. Wrong. You know, I used to be on the Ability One Commission, and I put a thing in place back in 2009 called the Quality Work Initiative. And that qual and I had to fight for that. I fought hard. And if you hear what the basics of that is, it's hard to believe. Just that everybody should be treated fairly. Well, does that sound like something that you really need to say? Mm-hmm. That everybody should get a a way a fair wage, you know, a minimum wage, and that everybody should have the opportunity for advancement. Well, I have to tell you, it's very disheartening to me to think that anyone would have an organization that doesn't, you know, want those things desperately, because otherwise, what kind of help are you giving? Maybe if you're warehousing people, you know, back like back in 1941, that's acceptable. It's not acceptable now. So we're talking about replacing the Ability One program. And by the way, the the CNAs, the two large organizations that presently help the Ability One program distribute contracts to the to the individual groups, um, we're suggesting that they're going to wind up being the groups that are going to help within the government, help the individual groups get more and better contracts, have them look for it, and work with them. So we've developed an entire system around you know, uh, replacing, you know, changing and replacing, but with an absolute look uh, at the, you know, look at it from a point of view of increasing jobs and increasing them in large, important mainstream issues. You know, there are times that we give jobs to people with disabilities that aren't important. That's not right. Because as we were talking earlier, about people with disabilities and the economy and, uh, and, and COVID. The fact of the matter is, if they're essential jobs, then they're less likely to be damaged when, when things happen. And it's not just pandemics. It's also things like hurricanes. It's also things like tornadoes. The things that happen that displace people from their work. Can you talk a little bit more? You just talked about increasing numbers. I think the number you gave earlier was about 45,000 through Ability One. And as we know in the U.S., something like one out of every five Americans has a disability. So obviously the government can't provide contracts for all of us. But 
45,000 versus one in five is a big, big difference in numbers. So can you talk about trying to increase the employment possibilities? Well, I mean, the, I mean, I've, I've dedicated the last 25 years of my life to trying to increase the employment of people with disabilities. You know, it's a, it's funny, you, you guys, you know, people read the resume, they go through all that, but what they don't understand, what they don't recognize is that I'm a person with a disability who, mm-hmm. um, I, I started my own, I had to start my own company to get a real job. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm an entrepreneur, you know, and over the years, I have been very fortunate, very blessed to have had the opportunity um, to get various government positions and be able to, you know, offer a degree of influence because of things I have done in my private life. So employment, increasing employment is a matter of, from my point of view, uh, we've starting to do a really, really good job with large corporations. Um, helping them understand the value of people with disabilities. Um, it, uh, we have, uh, for instance, um, the uh, Disability In uh, program, wonderful program, uh, did a, a, a study with Accenture, which basically when the study came out said people with disabilities are, you know, valuable members of the workforce. Well, that's a big help, Okay. Uh, 15 years ago, I did a, uh, the first major survey about how people felt about people with disabilities in the workplace. And um, the people I were working with were disability advocates. And I did the poll with the Gallup organization and the University of Massachusetts School of Social Research. And they said, please don't do this. Because what we're going to get back is that people are not going to want people with disabilities. Mm. They're going to say things about people with disabilities. They're not going to say they're good employees. They're not going to say, Neil, you're going to really hurt the, the whole thing. I said, I don't know that I agree with you. I said, let's see. Well, we did the survey and it was remarkable. Over 95% of the American people said they want to see more people with disabilities in the workplace. Over 90% of people who worked with people with disabilities said the person with a disability was a better employee, someone they could trust more, someone they counted on. They got exactly the opposite of even what disability groups believed would be said on this poll. So what I'm saying is increasing gets increasing employment gets back to not just the government things, but what you said, Claire, a little bit earlier, which I thought was extremely astute. It's about societal changes. Because oftentimes government, you know, you have to, it's not just a matter of a law. It's how you deal with the law. Now, I work with, uh, I, uh, one of my, because I, NCD is considered a part-time federal employee, employment, so I have my consulting firm, and one of the groups I consult with is, 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 the, well, is Walmart. And in having conversations and working with them over the years, they have begun to realize the absolute value of people with disabilities, and the number of people they employ is, is remarkable. But we recognize that it's a matter of socialization. It's a matter of saying these folks are, they, A, A, let's start here. Let me, let me start with A. They're human beings. Mm-hmm. 
they they have the same rights you have you know uh when uh you know what i want for my two daughters uh and my family i want for clark and claire and i want for people with other disabilities uh, i want it for them too and you know what they want it too they do and, and they're entitled to that so we have we understand fully that um you know it has a lot to do with socialization has a lot to do with showing people the value i did a program in uh, major league baseball where we showed major league baseball players who had had um uh, who have serious disabilities who play the game at the highest highest level because someone looked at them and said they could and they mm-hmm. let them. And they, you know, and they start. So, um, as you probably are aware, you have someone who's legally blind, uh, who was a two-time Cy Young Award winner, uh, Jake Peavy, who was a pitcher. Uh, so there's there's all kinds of, uh, you know, looking at, you know, socializing it is important. Looking at the legislation is important. Convincing the businesses of the value of people with disabilities. And one of the things that I'm going to begin working on, that we're working on right now, is looking at it in small uh in smaller areas with smaller businesses when i say smaller businesses i'm talking about businesses that you know that are in the 5000 people and less a lot of times we forget about them and our messaging and the things we talk about you know we we immediately talk to the largest corporations because you feel you're going to get the best bang for your dollar by doing that but the fact of the matter is you know whereas they're probably really hip about employing people with disabilities in um, you know Los Angeles or New York or Chicago or um not so much in Kankakee Iowa maybe you know maybe not not so much in uh, in Round Rock uh, Texas we need to get into those smaller communities and tell people because frankly that's also where the jobs are it's in the smaller communities with the smaller businesses so we need to do a better job in that area and Mr. Romano we talked about socializing uh, this issue and disability employment. Uh, I would point out just last week, um, one of ACB's partners, uh, Microsoft, has now begun publicly uh, publishing their disability employment numbers and talking with some of their folks previously. It was, you know, internally we're told that we matter and there were people with disabilities, but yet no one ever publishes information about us. Um, but now, along with all their other diversity and inclusion statistics, they have their number of employees with disabilities. Um, do you think that that is a model that other companies will begin adopting to help oh. socialize this issue? Abs- absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, one of the reasons I took uh, took a position with uh, Walmart was because they're very willing to talk about things. And, you know, when you have a Microsoft or a Walmart or a GM or whomever it is, these big companies, if they say, hey, it's working for us and these are great employees. Well, that takes some of the, you know, it takes some of the thought process out for the next guy. You know, it's um, it, it makes them understand, hey, they can do it. We can do it. Um, that's one of the things about leadership. Leadership is all about, you know, stepping forward. For many, many years, many years, we had businesses say to me, you know, Neil, we're, we, we don't want to talk about it. We're working hard in that field. We care about it. We want to talk about it. Because if something goes wrong and it goes in the newspapers, they'll savage us. You know, if, if, you know, if, if we have a worker that, you know, who is, 
you know, a quadriplegic that we have to fire, you know, they're going to run to the media, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, they're going to sue us, blah, blah, blah. Well, that's proven not to be true. Uh, businesses are now saying, well, we don't really care because guess what? If we're going to get sued or we're going to get in trouble, um, about 97% of the time, it's going to be by a, it's going to be by a, uh, a male, so somewhere between the ages of 35 and 50, uh, who's going to create problems in the business, blah, 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 with regard to suits, etc. So we need to look at this effectively. You know, every time, any time in American society that we've marginalized someone, um, no matter what it is, it has always been a, a problem for us. And you know what? We deserve it. Um, if it's a problem. But you know what? Those problems, once understood, hopefully we work to resolve them and makes it better. Um, so I think that uh, in looking at something like that, a model like that, it's exquisite. You know, it, it's it's excellent. And sometimes you're going to get beat up a little bit, but it's okay because in the final analysis, you're still doing the right thing and that'll change. And Chairman Romano, circling back to the Ability One program, ACB, we certainly have members and friends and family who are employed by Ability One agencies throughout the country, whether that's Lighthouse Central Florida and Lighthouse Works in Orlando or Seattle Lighthouse and others across the country. And then in some states, folks who receive uh, vocational vocation rehabilitation services from these agencies to seek employment or as they transition, maybe they're losing their vision later in life due to a chronic medical condition like diabetes um, or just, you know, age onset macular degeneration. Um, So certainly it's a, it's a program that is still serving many individuals in training and employment um, and the the reforms were me- recommended by NCD won't won't happen overnight. So as we look to, like you said, because there are actual people being employed and receiving training from this um, this program, we want to make it work work better um, for those individuals. And yet earlier this month, um, we saw a an agreement reached with the department of justice with an ability one agency charged to employ people who are blind and visually impaired on government contracts, uh, IBVI in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh, who uh, agreed to pay a settlement with the department of justice for basically not living up to their promises um, under the false claims act and the anti kickbacks act. Um, they were both well, their allegations, right? So nothing is finalized there, but allegedly contracts were being subbed out and performed by non-disabled employees with a commission tasked with overseeing this program and with nonprofits around the country whose responsibility it is to provide employment and provide training how is this possible? And what's, I mean, what's the impact for the individuals? Like you said, we're in the middle of a pandemic. People with disabilities are often the last hired and the first well, fired or first let go. 
And then you have a, an organization whose mission it is to employ people who are blind and low vision, um, skirting the rules and skirting the issues. Well, I'm not, let me, let me just say, I'm not going to speak directly to that case because I, I don't know it well enough and I'm not involved in it, but let me just say this. First of all, that's horrifying. <laughs> that's, you know, to me, that's as bad as it gets. Um, and uh, part and parcel is the oversight. Uh, you have to look to, you know, you have to hope that the Ability One Commission is having the kind of oversight that looks into and catches these things early. And part of what we said was we didn't believe that it was doing that effectively. So it is a, you know, I mean, every business, everything has problems that go like that. But to me, it's particularly egregious when it is something where you have a, um, you have, it's done specifically for people who are uh, need this um, and they go on a different route. It's well, it's, you know, it's something like that. It's just dead wrong. And we all, we all know that we don't need to go beyond that, but that's one of the reasons Things like that have, this is not the first time, you know, pro, there have been problems in this organization. And we just feel that doing, doing it the way it is, it makes it ripe for problems. But those problems are not even, from my point of view, that's a huge problem. But it's nothing compared to the message that the entire program in its totality sends to the American people. It's a, it just basically says, here's a group of people that we don't believe should be part and parcel of our society. You know, I, I've, I've, I testified before the Civil Rights Commission, and one of the things I said is, can you imagine for one second, and God forbid, if they use this kind of program on any other group of people in America? Can you even fathom in 2020 a program that was segregated for, um, you know, uh, anyone, women, African-Americans, Hispanics, LGBT, anyone segregated from the rest of society for reasons that basically said they can't? It would be outrageous. You know why? Because it is outrageous. Because we have laws that said this, that say that segregation is bad, and not just laws that say segregation is bad, but we have we have a ton of data and history that shows that it does not help the people when you segregate them. So I mean, programs, any program, you know, any program can have problems, but when you layer in the fact that there are these other issues involved, that's important. And I did want to say one thing. Yes, some of these programs provide training. Yes, some of these programs provide vocational help. Yes, 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 all that's true. Part of what we are saying is that we also need to find the funding and everything to make sure those things are done and continue to be done for those folks. We need to have more money for that kind of vocational training. We need to focus more on the kind of vocational training that moves them into real jobs. And if that is part and parcel of what, you know, is that, it, you know, if we got rid of the program that goes away, we're not allowing that to go away. That's not going to happen. As I said at the outset, we want to do this without seeing one single person lose a job or supports. 
And the you just to back up a second, uh, you mentioned testifying before the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, and they also released a report, I believe it was in September, uh, on the effect of subminimum wages. And uh, the report findings are (laughs) uh, echo those of NCD, that this is a a policy that should be eliminated. And certainly ACB and our members um, have been on record supporting a bill introduced by Senator Casey that would do just that, the Transformation to Competitive Employment Act, uh, phasing out the payment of subminimum wages over time, as well as having supports in place for the employees to transition um, through that change as well. In addition, NCD is hosting a series of town halls. Uh, There were two held last week. One will be held uh, the day that this podcast airs, this Thursday, the 29th, and the final town hall will be held on November 5th, talking about this recent report from NCD on reforms to the Ability One program, as well as Section 14C, payment of subminimum wages for disabled employees. And more information about that can be found at ncd.org. Uh, Mr. Chairman, in addition to the resources available at NCD, as well as the report from the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights and another report that you mentioned earlier, the Accenture report called Getting Back to Equal from 2018, that adds not only is employing people with disabilities um, provide good value to an organization, it provides good financial value to companies as well, um, their bottom line, their stock price. Uh, and broader GDP of America as a whole. Are there any other resources that you think are important to share with our listeners? You know, as, as and by the way, Clark, thank you for for doing that little bit of an advertisement for us. <laughs> we, uh, I sometimes get so wrapped up in the issue, I forget uh, what I'm supposed to be, you know, those little things. But um, we do have a, we have a vast amount of resources on um, on NCD on www.ncd.gov, we have reports uh, that go back uh, over thirty years uh, that are consistent. I also suggest that when people look at those, I also think that people should look at the GAO reports about disability in America um, because they are uh, that's an area that often uh, I I tend to look at because they give you an indication of what's good uh, and what needs work. And um, unfortunately, disability programs in America, government programs, have been on the endangered list for years and years and years. Uh, so those are the areas and the resources that I would, I would most likely recommend. Uh, Thank you so much. I know I've really enjoyed listening to everything that's been said today, and I've even learned a lot. So thank you so much, Chairman Romano, for taking some time out of what I'm sure is a very busy schedule um, to spend some time with us. So thank you again. Thank you both very, very much. I appreciate it. And hey, I'd love to do it again. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Oh, we have that on record now. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Mr. Chairman, you you read our mind because you've also, you you discussed one of your other passions as a topic near and dear to our members in our organization, and that's accessibility in healthcare and with medical devices. So we will be sure to follow up with you on that topic. I, I, 
I appreciate that. And I'll do it. I'm, can I give you just one more thing? Can I just say one more thing? Well, we got absolutely. I just want to say that as we go through this COVID uh, thing, you know, NCD has been working very hard on medical accessibility, and it should come as a shock to your audience and and all people with and without disabilities that NCD, along with the Department of Health and Human Services, worked to issue a um, worked to issue a paper to them. Uh, I think it's called a regulation to them, reminding them that during this COVID, they had to treat people with disabilities equally to others. Is that startling? Isn't that, shouldn't that be startling to everyone that we actually had to have conversations with states that had emergency medical plans for such a pandemic where in the, major, in the plan it said they would not be treating people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. That shows you that is illegal. And that shows you when we get back to the hearts and minds of people that's the area we have to attack. And I am delighted that ACB um, is working on issues like this and attacking. And once again, anytime you want me, you got me. Thank you. Um, so thank you again. We really enjoyed this. And again, I know I learned a lot. To all of our listeners, again, if you have any advocacy needs, especially based on what we talked about today, again, reach out to us at advocacy at acb.org. Clark and I are here to help in any way we can, so please don't hesitate to reach out on these topics or any other issues that might be going on in your lives. And as we are drawing ever closer to November 3rd, just one more plug, that November 3rd is the last day to vote. It is not the only day to vote, so be sure to visit acb.org slash voting. Use the Plan Your Vote tool to come up with a plan on how you're going to vote Uh, in this upcoming and ongoing election, again, November 3rd, the last day to vote. And if you have any experiences about your voting from soup to nuts, registering all the way up till November 3rd that have been impacted because of inaccessibility for those of us who are blind or visually impaired, please email those to voting at acb.org. And thank you, Sprint T-Mobile, for underwriting this podcast, along with all our podcasts now until the end of 2020. And Claire, what do we always say? Keep advocating. Thanks for listening to the ACB Advocacy Update. You can reach us by emailing advocacy at acb.org. The ACB Advocacy Update is a production of the American Council of the Blind in Alexandria, Virginia. To learn more about ACB, visit us online at www.acb.org.